Wouldn't it be amazing to see like Patty Smith reading your book? Oh, hell yeah. Reading the story, Patty Smith, yes. in your book. <laughs> yes. As far as Rocket Queen goes, it's a sexy song. There is a sex scene that is recorded in the studio that is used in the track. That song is so junior high for me. It's that age when you know a little bit about sex, but you don't know everything. And like, then everyone's, t- you know, like, did you hear this song? There's someone like they're having sex in the song. It brings me back to that time. Warning, this sort of content is questionable. I got no problem breaking the rules. This is a rock and roll show. Rock is lit! Welcome to Season 2 of Rock is Lit, the first and still only podcast devoted to rock novels, brought to you by Pantheon Podcast Network. Make sure you subscribe so you won't miss any of the episodes featuring some amazing rock novelists and music experts. I'm your host, Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page, from Livingston Press. Find me on Facebook at Christy Alexander Hallberg and Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website at christyalexanderhallberg.com. If you enjoy the show, do me a solid and pop on over to Good Pods or Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and rating. As always, Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I thank you for tuning in. Hello, Lit listeners. As you know, Rock is Lit is a podcast about rock novels. Well, in this episode, y'all, we're going rogue. Melissa Ragsley is here to talk about the music-related stories in her short story collection. We know this will all disappear. We'll be name-dropping folks like The Beatles, Gene Simmons from Kiss, FTD, Patti Smith, and Guns N' Roses. Speaking of Guns N' Roses, their song Rocket Queen is a major motif in the story Mannequin. So Aaron Camaro, co-host of the Decibel Geek podcast, another proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network, joins me during the last segment to do a deep dive into that song. FYI, Aaron's is the voice behind that rock is lit shout out in the intro and outro of the podcast. Make sure you stick around to hear more from Aaron. But first, we welcome Melissa Ragsley to the show. Melissa Ragsley's work has appeared in Best American Non-Required Reading, Best Small Fictions, Iowa Review, Hobart, and other journals. Her debut collection of short fiction, We Know This Will All Disappear, is out now from Pank Books. Author Gabino Iglesias says that these stories are, quote, dirty, brilliant, painfully human, fast, and strangely sensual. They were pulled from somewhere between a drunken phone call and a half-forgotten childhood dream, end quote. Melissa lives in the Hudson Valley and is director of regional chapters for the Authors Guild. Welcome to Rock is Lit, Melissa. Thank you for having me, Christy. I'm really happy to be here. Glad you could join me. Now that we've begun season two, I figure it's time to shake up the five questions segment of TAD. Shake it up. Uh, Yeah, I've kept some old questions or an an old question or two and added some new ones. Are you ready to play? I am very ready to play. Question number one. 
What music video made the biggest impression on you? Okay. As a Gen Xer, I feel like this is going to be a very cliched answer, but it's really the truth. And and that smells like teen spirit. Yes. When I first saw the, um, it debuted um, when they were really not very well known. They debuted on 120 Minutes, MTV's Sunday night show. And I heard it, I had no idea who they were. And it really, it's like, I, it changed the way like I felt about music, like almost immediately. And I never went into school on a Monday and asked people, hey, did you hear this song last night? <laughs> I never, ever, ever did that. And I did that with this song. No one had heard of it. No one stayed up to watch 120 Minutes on Sunday night like I religiously did. But then by the end of the week, everyone knew the song. People were like already like fans after one week. And there was something really powerful about it. And I mean, for me, I don't know if it was the video necessarily, although it was not the typical video that you'd see on MTV. It really was the song. It really sounded like nothing else I had heard on the radio. Nothing I had heard watching, you know, alternative music shows or alternative radio. It really sounded... It sounded new and fresh, but it wasn't out of nowhere. I mean, they were really grounded in melody and, you know, they grew up on the Beatles and stuff. So like it's an R.E.M. I like loved R.E.M. Um, so it's not out of nowhere, but it was just a really unique, special new way. Yeah. You know, to have, a you know, pop music. And it really did start the beginning of, um, you know, thinking differently about pop music. You know, it wasn't always packaged and produced the way everyone was used to it, like in the 80s, like with Paula Abdul. I always think it was like Paula Abdul, hair metal, and then Nirvana. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, what a breath of fresh air after all that yeah. hair metal in the 80s. Yeah, which I, I appreciate, you know. It's like, I don't hate it, but it's, I, it's not, I, I don't like it for the artistic sake almost you know I like <laughs> I like it for what it is um and gotcha. it's kind of funny and um uh, you know I love uh the Motley Crue book uh, the dirt and the Netflix mm. show which was really bad but I also really loved watching it but like for real artistic sense like for good songwriting for good singing for really making something that means something to the artist that felt like brand new yeah that's a great choice Number two, okay. if you could see any band or solo artist, living or dead, in concert, who would it be? Okay, this is really, really hard. This is one of those like impossible <laughs> questions because it could be, I, the answer could be different on the day, you know, yes. depending on the mood mm-hmm. that you're in. So I was, I was thinking about like, well, what are the bands that I really liked and loved and never got to see live and the chances of me seeing them live? are little to none. Mm. Now, I never saw Nirvana live, but I actually wouldn't pick them. I um, I was thinking about one of my favorite albums ever um, by a band called The Sundays. The Sundays I don't know them. came out. They are British. They came out, I think their first album that I love, Reading, Writing, Arithmetic, came out in 89 or 88, I think. Um, they had a few hit songs in America, um, mostly on the like the college radio charts. Um, Here's Where the Story Ends is probably the, the most well-known song. Now, places I go, make me feel 
That's the Sundays. That's that band? Yes. I love that song. It's a beautiful song. And the album is one of those albums that's like a desert island disc for me. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. It's like I, I weekly will think of like the way she sings those lyrics the song, they're almost, if you read the lyrics, they're almost like nursery rhyme, simple but classic. But the way she sings it, uh, she just has this like very ethereal, beautiful voice. Yes, and she has she the most perfect hairdo ever. So it's basically <laughs> like, it's almost like, I don't know if you are familiar with like the show Absolutely Fabulous, like Patsy Stone, yeah. you know, like that big blonde uh-huh. bouffant. It's like that, but brunette. Okay. And a little, a little shorter, like a little not as close to heaven as not as tall <laughs> as Patsy Stones. <laughs> but um, it was always then, and always, and now, still like my perfect hairstyle that I wish I could achieve, but I've never really been able to do it. Um, but I feel like they would have like a very laid back sort of concert. You know, I'm not 19 anymore, and I don't want to sweat in a pit. I want to feel comfortable and I want to hear 
a, a, a voice that really resonates. I really, I do, um, I think I'm always connected to a voice in music more, you know, it's like, yeah, someone could be a great guitarist. You could be a great drummer, but I have got to like the singer's voice. That's number one, number one. And I love her voice. Is there a band that you like, but you don't like the singer? The one I'm thinking of right now is uh, Suede. You know, there's a British band, Suede, um, from the early 90s. They did have a really good guitar player that actually left the band, I think, after their first album. A lot of, I love bands that have a lot of, like, intrigue. <laughs> they have members, they have drama, they have, like, members <laughs> that get into fights with each other, and they used to, like, date the same person, or there's jealousy. I love that. So that band, Suede, has, has that. You're describing the making of rumors by Fleetwood Mac. Oh, well, uh, that's one of the most perfect examples of it. But the guy, the lead singer in Suede is Brett Anderson is his name. And he has a very almost, I want to say, pelican-like voice. Like it's a little screechy, hmm. but it's powerful. It's like a very British, powerful voice. And I think if he was a better singer... And I liked his voice better. I would love that band. They they have really um, sort of artful lyrics and the music is great. And it's from a time period that I really love, which is London in the 90s. And I wrote a novel about it, which is being shopped around right now. It is not published yet, um, but it's it's a Britpop. It's probably my favorite um, genre of music. And my favorite band is Blur. And Blur and Elastica are like the two king and queen to me of Britpop, not Oasis. Okay. Here's question number three. So picture this. You're in a bar. Yes. And you see a rock star sitting in the corner nursing a drink and reading your book. Mm. Who is it and what do you do? Okay. Well, there's two. I guess there's two answers. There's the answer of like... I would like people to buy my book and I want to like be a, <laughs> be a salesman. And like, honestly, I think Taylor Swift, I mean, like my daughter is a huge Taylor Swift fan. I feel like that happened. Didn't that happen? Like a couple of years ago, Kendall Jenner was like on a yacht and she was reading Chelsea Hodson's essay collection. And like all of a sudden everyone <laughs> bought that essay collection, you know, because oh my she goodness. was reading it. So, you know, selfishly, maybe I, and for my daughter's sake, I would probably say Taylor Swift. But um, if we were taking that off the table, if we're taking commerce off the table, I would really love to see, I mean, wouldn't it be amazing to see like Patti Smith reading your book? Oh, hell yeah. Wouldn't that be like- Reading the story, Patti Smith, yes. in your book. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, that would be um, what I would hope the most, like just that that cosmic, you know, energy of like finding Patti Smith, reading your book, reading the story called Patti Smith in the book. And she's such a great writer herself, you know, um, so, uh, uh, not just of music, of, of books as well. Um, oh, no, I love her books too. Yeah. So I think that would be a real, I don't, I, I'd be a little speechless. I don't know if I would be able to go up and say something. I mean, I would probably, I would probably have to have a drink first to get a little courage <laughs> to go up and talk to her. Um, but it would be, it would be amazing. Number four, fill in the blanks. When I hear blank song, 
I think of blank? Um, when when I think of the Sonic Youth song "Drunk Butterfly," I think of God and the end of my teenage years. God and the end of your teen. Okay. I saw them live a few times, I think, but this particular concert, it was um, the last day of my teenage years. I was, you know, 19 and 364 days old, and I'd always, you know, I'd always liked Sonic Youth, you know, but I, they, I don't know if they were one of my favorite bands. They were probably like top 20 favorite bands. Okay. Um, And I never really differentiated, like, there are some songs that Kim Gordon sings, and there are some songs that Thurston Moore sings, and there's even a couple songs where, like, the drummer, like, Lee Ronaldo, I think his name is, uh, I think he sings too, and I don't listen to those songs really that much, but when I heard- (laughs) It's like the Ringo songs. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's not bad, it's okay. Um, When I heard Kim Gordon sing Junk Butterfly, as I was- you know, turning into you know, closer to becoming an adult and closer to like getting at at a college. I also saw them at my school student center at NYU Student Center. Wow. Um, it it just it. I don't think I'd ever heard a song performed like that. Her voice and the guitar together. It just felt like the whole place was levitating. It just felt like we were all closer to some other force. It was amazing, you know? And um, it now, when I listen to Sonic Youth, I only listen to the Kim Gordon songs. I <laughs> won't give my time to any other uh, singer in the band. There's just something about her voice. And even though, like, that can't be repeated, you know, that was like one time live, you know, how many years ago? 20 years ago, whatever. It's almost like, you know, when you, you know, if you believe in God and like you read the Bible to try to like get closer to God, you know, hearing her sing is like that. Mm. Like, you know, trying to remember that time, remember that experience, even though it can never be exactly repeated. And we also share a birthday. You do. Me and Kim Gordon. Yeah. So it was on the eve of her birthday as well, although she was not going to be 20. (laughs) <laughs> she's, I don't know how old she was going to be. I don't know. She was going to be 37 or something like that. Yeah. Well, that makes it extra special. Yeah. Number five. I kept this one from the original five questions. What's on your playlist now? Well, you know what's funny is like, I don't listen to as much music as I used to. And I don't know if that's something that every that happens to everyone as they get older, like they, they listen to music less, or I just, I'm not in a car, I'm not commuting as much. So I don't have like the time when I, the space when I normally listen to music. So it's almost, um, when I listen to music now, it's like very special because I don't do it every day. And the things I'm really liking right now, um, I really love the new band Wet Leg. 
girls and I think they have some guys backing them up, but they're, oh, I don't know. They're British or Scottish or something. I don't know. See, if I was a kid, I would be like all, I'd be like reading about them. I would have seen everything about them. I would have seen them live. Now I'm like, oh, they're good. They're girls. (laughs) They have really, really catchy, really catchy songs and they're rock songs, um, but there's like a cheekiness to them. They're great. And um, the recent Lana Del Rey album, Norman Fucking Rockwell, is is like one of those like Desert Island discs for me as well. It's it's really and I, you know, I have other Lana Del Rey albums and I like her, but I've never like hooked onto an album of hers before. Like it's always been a couple like singles. Like I like this single. I like this song. Yep. This whole album is just, it's amazing. It's just so evocative of sort of a time and a place. It's almost like, um, you know, I've been reading a lot of Eve Babbitts lately. I don't know if you like Eve Babbitts, but um, mm-hmm. that's very like LA in the 70s. And that's what this album feels like to me. Like someone from another place that's coming to fulfill a dream and the dream is not really coming true. <laughs> it's, so it's kind of dark. It's kind of sad. Um, but it's just very lovely. You know, it's just really a, a, a mood. It's a total mood. I've heard good things about that, but this is the best review that I've I've heard so far. This really makes me want to go listen to it. What's your favorite rock novel? Okay, so I... I, I don't, this might be controversial because it's not really a rock novel, but it, to me, it feels like a rock novel. And that's um, London Fields by Martin Amis. I don't know that one. It's, uh, it came out in 1989 and it really felt, uh, it, it was, re- it was, it feels like a, like a rock song. It feels like a band, like it feels like very energetic and tense. But also, it was the it was the novel that a lot of those bands, those Brit pop bands that I love so much, it was the novel they all read and bonded over and would talk ah. about. You know, it was on their night table, their night tables. When I would read interviews with Justine Frischman, the lead singer of Elastica, she would talk about how great this novel is and how much she loved it. So of course, you know, I read it, <laughs> and I really fell in love with Martin Amis's prose and like he's got his detractors and his lovers it's kind of like you either love him or you hate him some people think he's too clever by half you know like it's always about putting in the little ironic joke or just uh, but i love that you know it's it's really you read his stuff and no one else could could have written exactly what he writes like he's got a voice that is very unique there's a beat to it which I love in writing. I love yeah. that punchiness, you know, especially with yeah. a rock novel. I love that punchiness, that rhythm. So note to self, get a hold of this book. Let's take a short break and we'll be back with Melissa Ragsley. And make sure you hang around for the last segment of the podcast to catch Aaron Camaro dish about the Guns N' Roses song, Rocket Queen. 
Melissa Ragsley, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. We're back with Melissa Ragsley, author of We Know This Will All Disappear, a short story collection published by Pank Books in 2019. Like I said at the outset of the episode, this is a first for Rock is Lit. I've never featured a short story collection. It's always rock novel, so congratulations on being the first. Thank you. I feel honored. Thank you. Oh, well, good. Well, good. Let's talk about this genre a minute. I love what you said in an interview with Barrel House magazine, quote, short stories in flash. You have this brief time with a reader. It's like an affair, like an hour in a hotel room, and you have to put it all out there before you tuck it all in and go back to your life. And this makes me think of novels as a long-term relationship, a marriage, kind of in comparison. We know this will all disappear, won the Pink Big Book Contest in fiction, didn't it? Uh, Yes, it did. So you were the judge for the same contest the following year. Yeah. What do you think makes a great short story collection? It's like every collection might have a, something a little different that makes it sort of special and and magic. But I think that all of them have to feel like they belong together. Like there's some sort of magical um, like cobwebs that make them all you know, they're separate and they're not about the same people. And maybe they're not about the same subject, but there is something that connects them together. And I think oftentimes, if it's not thematic, oftentimes it's the voice of the writer. Um, if if a writer has a really strong voice, like we were talking before about like Martin Amos, if, if you can read something and kind of maybe not know exactly who the writer is, but have a good guess, like, oh, you know, um, yeah, it. It's just great. It's like a wonderful thing to to see that they can carry that along. You know, it's not just a one time thing. It, it's it's something that they can develop, and and that's almost like their mark. So as long as there's something, the, the connection could be. It could be like an intuition feeling, like you know, you like it could be something that you can't verbalize. You know, as as the reader or the writer. Sure. I think a lot of times. Um, things just feel right or they don't feel right. And it's hard to explain. And I feel like, you know, the whole point of, you know, what we do as writers is we, you know, use words to paint these pictures. And sometimes I don't like to use words to explain them because it's like, you know, let the words speak for themselves. <laughs> and sometimes it's just like a feeling. So if you read a collection and the 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 stories don't feel like they go together, um, then it feels like you're reading like um like a journal or something like like yeah they're good stories but it doesn't feel like one like it, it you know it doesn't feel like one writer or one theme and it's it's I don't think it's it's fine but it's like not as special if they if they don't feel like they fit together. There is this connective tissue in this book and in it part of it is the voice, but part of it is some other stuff too. And I think um with with shorter fiction. Those first lines and the last lines really yeah. have to pack that punch. 
and you have that Thank you. in these in this collection. The the first lines are are really terrific, and I'm I'm going to talk about one of them in a bit. Thank you. Here's a little bit about the overall book per the publisher. We know this will all disappear as a collection of short stories and flash pieces that explore the chaotic and exhilarating inner lives of women and grief. The sense of loss they navigate does not always stem from the death of a loved one, but rather the loss of something dear, something familiar. What do we put in that empty place when something is gone? These 16 stories are not about defeated people, but people that are in a pause, a crossroads that only they see before them. These characters are intimate with themselves. Intimacies are raw, but not always truthful. These are stories of adaption. I think that's an apt description for this collection. Thank you. And now I find the title intriguing. There's not a story in the collection called We Know This Will All Disappear, but there's that undercurrent of grief, not from death necessarily, because there's really not much yeah. literal death in the book, but a sort of grief that's, you know, for what's lost in yeah. life. And and the book title conveys that. How did you decide on that title? That is a good question. I was playing around with different titles. I, you know, someone was talking about this on Twitter, like yesterday, like, um, like someone asked a question, is it okay to title a collection um, when it's not the name of one of the stories inside of a collection? And um, like, they really weren't sure, you know, they were, you know, wondering if that's done. And I, and I think that those are, to me, the best kind of collections when when it's not just named after a story um but it's named after sort of a feeling that the book gives you and i you know i think i was toying what was there was something i was i at first i had sort of a title that had music related in the title and i can't even remember what it was i think it was like um Mute, uh, disappearances set to music, something like that. But then I didn't feel like that was exactly right. And but I liked the idea of something di of disappearance, something disappearing. You know, something not being there. And this pain in my chest, it's still there. It won't let me rest. we're really, you know, we walk around all, you know, in our lives knowing that we're going to lose a lot of things. <laughs> we're going to lose people. We're going to lose jobs. We're going to lose relationships, you know, and we just kind of go on like that's not something that's always there, <laughs> you know, like I, I feel like we just are these amazing creatures that kind of it's not, it's not like we totally ignore all of the grief in our life, but to get through most of our life, we kind of do. On the one hand, you could look at that title as, as sort of this pessimistic, in, in a pessimistic way, and that, yes, we're going to lose everything. That's realistic, as we were just, you were just saying. But I, I think there's also something optimistic about yeah. it. With liberation, as a character caused death in the story Crumbs, which deals with euthanasia, you're 
liberating yourself from pain, physical and emotional, and it will all disappear. Yeah. So there's the, it, it goes together in both of those, those ways in sort of a pessimistic, but also an optimistic way of looking at it. Yeah, because the things that disappear aren't always going to be things that you love. Yeah. It could be things that are bothering you, things that are, uh, you know, are, you know, on your shoulders, you know, uh, things that you want to be gone with. So really there is a positive and a negative side to it. Just like, it's just how life is, you know, it's sure. And that's, and that's realistic. And that's, um, I, that's what I wanted to convey like that. I think that if you're reading it, you might think it's kind of a more on the dark side, but I don't really, you know, I think there's a lot of light. There's a lot of light in this. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's literal, like literal brightness. (laughs) And sometimes it's just um, like a underlying sense of hope or just going on. There are a lot of topics that the stories delve into, but because this is a podcast about the convergence of fiction and music, I'm going to focus on that aspect of the book and the stories that include that convergence in some way. But first, I'd like to hear about your interest in writing pop culture, especially music, into your fiction. You have said, I'm not a musician myself, and I think that's why I'm drawn to writing about it. What do you mean by that? Did you want to be a musician at some point? Oh, I mean, I think everybody wants to be a rock star, <laughs> yes, right? I was going to say mean, that. <laughs> I remember, you know, standing on my um, my fireplace which was almost like a little stage when I was a kid. And there mm-hmm. was, I don't know why we had a set of horns. I don't know if they were like yak horns or bull horn. I don't, I have no idea, but they were hanging above the fireplace. And I would use the horn as my microphone because it was like attached, you know, and I can kind of move it around. And um, I always wanted to learn how to play the piano. I always wanted to learn how to play the guitar. I sometimes I would try to teach myself and I just I I just don't have it. You know, I just don't, like I'm not like my fingers don't want to move that way. You know, I I can't rem- I can't remember notes in the right pattern. Like I can't learn to dance because I can't learn the steps in the right way. I have to freestyle. I'm all about freestyling. So, yeah, of course. Um and I really think, and, and you know, because of MTV and growing up with MTV, like that was really my first portal into the world outside of my house and my town. That was really where I learned about the rest of the world. Oh, yeah. So it always mm-hmm. feels connected. It feels, con- music feels connected to learning about new things, discovering new things. And I think that's what a lot of writing, or at least, you know, you, you try to accomplish as a writer sometimes is teaching yourself something new about what you're writing about because often you're discovering the theme or you know the things you didn't know you're discovering as you're writing so music to me is like that first step you know that it's like that opens the door yeah I didn't have any horns but I certainly (laughs) sang into my hairbrush plenty of times here's another quote of yours that caught my attention pop culture is a religion for people that don't believe in God what are people like that getting from pop culture that organized religion can't fulfill? That's a good question. I, I think that there is a reason that we attach ourselves to people that ev- that everyone knows. You know, like someone like, you know, if you're talking about like Britney Spears or something like that, you know, someone really famous who's almost like a tragic figure, there's something about 
her story that resonates with a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons. So yeah, it's it's almost the easiest mirror to look at is pop culture because it's really unavoidable, you know. Um, and maybe it's not as as deep as if you're reading something and you're and you're seeing yourself in a character, but it's something that so many people can identify with. And part part of religion, I think, is the idea of not feeling alone. Yes. So I think the fact that when there's something that thousands, millions of people can maybe not agree on, but have a similar language, you know, there's something com- community building about it. I mean, it's like, you know, I could I could sit with a stranger and talk about Britney Spears or I could talk about the Beatles or I could talk about, you know, George Clooney or something, you know, like anything. I could talk about um, a commercial that everyone has been watching and it's this way to connect. And sometimes it's frivolous and sometimes there's a reason why people are very popular. You know, there's a reason why someone is a star, you know, there's a difference between stars and there's an an artist, but sometimes they converge and sometimes, um, sometimes it's easier to see yourself in a star than in an artist because a star is supposed to be broad. It's supposed to kind of appeal to a lot of people. Right. So right. sometimes you it's easier to find something about yourself in in someone everybody knows. And I'll tell you, I have yet to read or hear anything as inspiring as You know, if if I say that and somebody knows what I'm talking about, it's like, yeah. all right, we're on the yeah. same page. We're probably in the same generation and we know that's a very pissed off Matt Dillon yeah. and the outsiders just talking about friendship and camaraderie and loyalty yeah. and beating the shit out of people who threaten yeah. your friends. And, and, and God, speaking of Britney Spears, do you, do you follow her on Instagram? Yes. Because uh, talk about a train yes, wreck. I, you know, I just, this is scary. I just saw the, the video with like the, the Christmas video, Santa baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's not a story that's over. Basically, you know, I mean, I, I think that like the, you know, it was a, it was the end of the conveyor ship was like the end of chapter, you know, 10, and there's still five more chapters left to go. So who knows where it's going to go from here. I think it's really hard to grow up, not to grow up. I think it's, I think it's hard to grow up famous and it's hard to grow up trying to be famous and not being famous. I think they both are probably really equally like stunting you know yeah it's like you shouldn't no one should try to be known by the world uh when they're still growing let's talk about some of the stories in the book that feature music or music themes the first one that comes to mind we've already mentioned is called patty smith yeah about a preteen girl who is convinced patty smith is her mama and yeah. secretly lives in her neighborhood. Now, I felt an, a real affinity with this story because my novel, Searching for Jimmy Page, is about a teenage girl who thinks the Led Zeppelin guitarist is her father. Isn't that so funny? It, Yeah, but she's really searching for her identity and thinks the answer lies in connecting with this rock star. 
So tell me about the premise of the story, Patty Smith. Why does the narrator feel such a need to be Patty Smith's daughter? Why Patty Smith? Well, I mean, I think it's because you know, this character, she's young, she's like 13, and she does not feel connected to anybody. You know, when, when you're that young, at the, you know, especially at the time before the internet, like you are really isolated. You know, if you don't get along with your family, if you feel like an outsider in your school, you really don't have anywhere to turn. You know, it wasn't like a kids didn't, you know, go to therapists. You know, there was really no, there was not a lot of outlets except for like, you know, Christian youth groups, really. <laughs> um, so the only thing, you know, when when you see someone you're impressionable and you're when you're young and you don't see anything that feels like it fits you, like the clothes don't fit, you know, and you see this picture of someone who looks so different than everybody else that you see, you just automatically, it's like you want to be connected to it. You want, well, I can't be from this place, obviously, because I don't fit in. I must be from the, where she is from, you know, and it's, I, you know, she probably doesn't, you know, she probably knows that Patty Smith is not her mother, but it's, it's that fantasy world of like, um, I've got to find something to hold on to because I don't have anything to hold on to in the real world. And I just have to get through this real world until I can go out and find someone that's like Patty Smith outside somewhere else. And she doesn't have a mother or a father. Mm -hmm. Her mother has died mm -hmm. and she doesn't know who her father is. Mm -hmm. She lives with her grandparents. Yeah. That's the other thing that I found interesting about why she would choose Patty Smith. I mean, I know she sees her picture on the cover of Rolling Stone mm -hmm. and it's, she doesn't look like anybody she's ever seen. Like you were saying, here's a, here's a quote from that section. I have never seen such a person like her before. I can see how she could frighten the pants off of anyone. I keep the picture to myself because she seems fearless. And it's strange to me how someone could cause fear and not have any of it themselves. And, you know, when we think of Patti Smith, I think of somebody who's a little androgynous mm -hmm. and fearless mm -hmm. and has no fucks to give. Yep. And so here's this girl with no mother and no father this person kind of en encompasses characteristics of both female and male. So, hey, there's my mom and my dad kind of <laughs> all wrapped up in one and yeah. she's fearless. And she, you know, yeah. it was a, I thought it was a, a great choice. Thank you. Yeah. And the story is terrific. Thank you so much. Yeah. And I actually did grow up in a town called Smithtown. Oh, you did? I did. And that's why <laughs> that's because um, the character in the, in the, story also that's you know her her ex her explanation and her right. you know 13 14 year old brain will like hey i live in a town called smithtown you know her name is smith it's like fate you know but i mean she doesn't really believe that i think you know there's something you know there's something deeper going on but sometimes when you're that age or even now like you you look for those little coincidences and you you, that's where you start. Exactly. And then you try to explain it to yourself. And I love how she starts to study Patty. And she gets the cassette 
And and I love that there are all these cassettes flying around in this book because it just yeah. so grounded me in the 80s yeah. and my own youth. But she gets horses on cassette mm-hmm. and she listens to it and she's looking for little hidden meanings in the lyrics. And just all of these things like, well, let me solve this mystery. Surely now that she's famous, she's going to come back for me and she's watching over me. And it's it's so endearing that that is what she needs. I've read that the story Present Tense is actually creative nonfiction about your karaoke friend that suddenly passed away. So first of all, that's that's just awful, and I'm really sorry for your loss. Can you talk a little bit about what that piece means to you? Yeah, yeah. Um, my friend, um, I used to work with him, and I met him uh, through my job, and he, I felt a lot of, I felt like simpatico with him, you know, I felt very similar to him in a lot of ways. And I felt like, I felt like we were both carrying around this massive weight from childhood that I think I started to shed. And I mean, and I mean, I mean that like literally and figuratively. I mean, he was a, he was a big guy. And, you know, I was a very chubby kid and I was made fun of a lot for it. He was a a couple years younger than me and maybe he was like five years younger than me or something. And I feel like I was at a point in my life where I was just starting to like not get over that stuff because I don't think you ever really get over it. But like, you know, like how we were talking about before about, you know, walking around knowing that there's grief, knowing that, you know, there's terrible things going on and it's going to go away. Things that you love are going to go away and the grief's going to go away. And I think I was like starting to like, you know, move on and become like an adult. And I think that he was not there yet. And I think he had a lot of body shame. And I think he drank way, way too much. And I think that he was really sad. And he was the funniest person and he was loud and he was entertaining and he had a voice like amazing. Like he could sing opera. He could sing, as we talk about in the story, he could sing Eminem. He could do anything. And he didn't find that talent. Like he didn't see all that he could be. He didn't see that talent. You know, I think he really held on to um, whatever held him back. And whether that was his body, whether that was his family situation, I I don't know what it was, but he died very suddenly and I hadn't seen him in a few years because I wasn't working at the same job anymore. So I, I had missed him just from not, not seeing him. You know, I had, I had had a child and I lived in the Bronx. I wasn't in the city anymore and I didn't go out anywhere because I had a little like a baby. And, um, I was pushing her on the swings when I got a call from his dad saying that he had passed away suddenly. 
Oh, God. And it was really the first time that uh, anybody younger than me or, or like a, you know, in a, so my age basically had, yeah. had died. And it was really, really strange. And I can't believe I didn't get to see him again before he died. And I felt like this story was a way, this little, it's a flash, it's a short piece. It was a little way of remembering the times that we would spend together, which a lot of it was solo room, private room karaoke, just the two of us. Okay. Yeah. That, that was going to be my other question. When you did karaoke, I was picturing it being something more public, but no, this was a very private This was thing. a private room and it was, it was beautiful, but it was also like, there was a loneliness to two people in a private karaoke room. There is. And when I think about it now, like it, it does feel kind of lonely. I mean, I, I, I don't think it felt lonely at the time. I think we were having, you know, drinks after work and we were letting, letting out the steam, you know, but um, when I think about it now, I, I think it was very, very lonely. Mm. Last night at the bar, it was karaoke night. Yeah, everybody down there was feeling alright. They got big margarita pitches, two for one. I mentioned earlier that you have some great first lines in these stories. An example is in Mannequin. Here's the line. The very first week Tara got her license, the cassette in her car jammed, and no matter how hard we pushed eject with the flat of our palms, praying it would gag itself out like Gene Simmons' tongue, the tape just wouldn't budge. So I'm immediately in that car, and I'm back to my teenage self. It's the 80s. This is my favorite story in the book. Oh, great. I love this story. The cassette that's stuck in the car is Appetite for Destruction by Guns N' Roses. And the song Rocket Queen on that album becomes a major motif in the story. And I don't want to talk too much about that song itself and or its backstory because Aaron's coming on in a bit to talk about that. I do want to talk about what the song means to these girls, Tara and the narrator Jen, though. There's a lot about the story that has to do with objectifying and manipulating women, and in one case, a pig. Both girls experience this, so why is this particular song a sort of tie that binds them in their friendship? I mean, Jen thinks of it as their song. Well, uh, there is part of the song, and um, you know, I try to explain it in the story a little bit. At least, at least that first, you know, first step of of why they would pick this song. It it really changes the song really changes like in the middle or towards the end um where it really becomes like a totally different song like the the actual like the notes feel different the instrumentation feels different like it the way he sings feels different um you know it's basically a song where uh, you know he's talking about a girl and there's actual you know i i think it's like confirmed i don't think it's like a a rumor, but there, there is, I, I believe it is confirmed that there is audio of Axl Rose having sex with the drummer's girlfriend in the studio and recording it. And then ha that's like in the background of the mm -hmm. song. Mm -hmm. 
in the in like the beginning part um i think that they the drummer and the girl stayed together for a while after that but there was a lot of tension or something but um there it it's it becomes a different song and it becomes like quite like lighter like it's almost yes. like it's it's almost like you could you could see it like on a roller coaster it's almost like when when they when it's going to the top you can see it kind of lifting up and it feels lighter and the lyrics are like quite different than the beginning of it and it really does feel like the lyrics could be about a great friendship and not anything about you know having sex with the drummer's girlfriend or <laughs> you know or objectifying women it it really and I think it's with his voice too and I've always been a little bit up and down on his voice. Yes. He has a very unique voice and that's like that's one of the best things about it is that you you can tell it's Axel Rose singing immediately and sometimes it doesn't sound good and sometimes it sounds a little more like mellow or full of life and I feel like this is one of the best time best times his voice sounds really good here. I agree with in you. In the end of this song. Yeah. Yeah. Axel's not my fave, but he yeah. sounds pretty good on this. He does, right? And I f- there's almost something, you know, besides the lyrics, that the the tone in his voice, it feels very positive. It feels very like, like bo- it feels bonding. I mean, it feels mm. like y- y- that's how you would be talking or singing to someone that, you're going to have a long relationship with and that and it's not it's sexual it doesn't feel sexual right. at all right so that's why it fits with in their friendship because it is you know it is a friendship mm-hmm. not it's not a sexual relationship so yeah i think they just I, you know they they connected to something in the way it sounds the way it changes because that change is important too if the whole song was that one way i don't think they would feel as close to it. Let's hear a little bit of the end of that song. songs especially during those melodramatic angsty teenage years just mean in all caps everything yeah. and i think that's when music is the most powerful for most of us yeah. and it, it helps define us it connects us to other people in a way that conversation often can't at that age because yeah. you don't have the words and yeah. it it offers advice and inspiration and it comforts us and that's what's going on with these two characters, yeah. these two really great friends. And the song is such an, an instrumental, <laughs> instrumental part of the story. It just, it works so well. And by the way, I love that the other two girls in the story are named Wendy and Lisa. And please tell me you did that on purpose. Yes, of course. <laughs> of course I did. Yes. That is fabulous. Nod to Prince. Okay. I got the idea for this next bit from Peter McDade's rock novel, The Weight of Sound, and I decided to shamelessly steal it for Rock is Lit. It's a game called Only Pick One. You can only pick one in each category I'm going to throw out. Oh, wow. Okay. First category, bands in your book. 
FTD, Guns N' Roses, or The Beatles? The Beatles. Yay. All right. <laughs> you know, I'd never heard of FTD before. Had to look that one up. Fuck yeah. to death. Yes. <laughs> yeah, they're not they're not my favorite. I, they're not my favorite. Wow. I probably have listened to more Guns N' Roses in my life than the Beatles. Like I didn't mm. grow up in like a Beatles house and it really took me a long time to get the Beatles. All right. New category. Music eras. 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s. I I think you know the answer I do know to the this. Answer. <laughs> The 90s for sure. Although I do have a lot of love for the 80s. I think I, you know, the when I hear a song from the 80s now, like in the car, it does feel, it does make me smile. Like it's yeah, like it it's because like, I was it takes me back and I was really young. So it was um like very innocent, you know. Um but sometimes I just can't believe how like cheesy like <laughs> it was like like how they got away with this song being on the radio, this is bad, but um, still charming in a way. But the 90s really is where my heart and soul exists. I mean, I still that's still probably the music I listen to the most. Even though I try to keep current and I do listen to things that are made now, it's, it's mostly the 90s. New category, music formats, cassette tapes, CDs, or vinyl. I have a big spot in my heart for cassettes. That's like what I grew up with. Um, I would tape things from the radio. Me too. I would, yeah. I mean, I would make mixtapes and edit <laughs> things together. I would tape, I would tape show, I would tape sitcoms, Me too. the audio, right? And so you could listen to the audio later. And I would tape like, um, I loved David Letterman. I would tape David Letterman interviews and listen to them in my car. So, so yes, I, I feel like you could be more, you, you can be involved in the tape more. Whereas like you couldn't record something on vinyl and you, at, at least at first you couldn't record stuff on CDs. And then when you could, it was kind of complicated and it was not as fun. And you could actually take the tape out of the cassette tape and splice it and put tape on it. And so it could be actually like tactile as well. And I think it feels fits a lot within the like 90s Gen X do it yourself kind of thing that we have. You yeah. Know, tapes fit in more to that. And you could also take the tape out and put it, re spool it backward. Because mm -hmm. I remember yes. at the height of the satanic panic in the 80s, yes. my yes. boyfriend did that. He said, Well, let's just listen and see if Robert Plant is actually saying, My sweet Satan, we need to find out. So was he? You can't tell. I mean, it's some garbledy <laughs> good crap that yeah. You know. But we tried, and I I yeah. did ruin records trying to play them backwards, which you just you yeah. can't do. <laughs> you just can't do it. Yeah. Singers: mm -hmm. David Bowie, yeah. Freddie Mercury, or Michael Jackson. Oh, David Bowie, hundred percent. Okay, I'd probably pick Freddie Mercury, but David would be a close second. And the final one. The most important one, think hard about this, guitarist, Jimmy Page, Jimmy Page, or Jimmy Page. Think hard. This is not fair. This is not <laughs> fair. I would say the B Jimmy Page. <laughs> well, why the B Jimmy Page? What does he have that the others don't? He's in the middle. Mm. 
He's right in the heart of things. He's in the thick of things. And good answer. No, I always like I didn't grow up. I didn't listen to a lot of Led Zeppelin. I didn't grow up with with that. But what I do, what I do think of when I think of Led Zeppelin, and excuse me if this is like too graphic, but I always think of them <laughs> as the band that would take their sandwiches backstage and like have sex with their sandwiches. Wow. So that is wow. my that is my Led Zeppelin. Feel free to edit that out if that's too much. But. That's staying in, girl. Oh, good. Okay. That's staying yeah. in. Yeah. That they're sandwich fuckers. That's what <laughs> Led Zeppelin. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> I'm gonna have to look into this. Sandwich fuckers. That's interesting. We're getting near the end. Okay. <laughs> fun fun fact about you. When you were in high school, you worked at a fried chicken takeout place. I did. How did you know that? Did I, I write did my research. Oh my God, yeah, yeah, I did my yeah, research. The fun fact part is not just that. It's also that when I was in high school, I worked at Kentucky Fried Chicken. So it's official, Melissa. We're soul sisters. We are. Yes. We are. Did you also get like grease all over your shirt and it would never, ever, ever go away? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Well, let me ask you this though. Did you have to wear like white t-shirts so that when the grease would come all over your shirt, it would become (laughs) see-through? No. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. Yes. I did. I did. Me and all the other teenage (sighs) girls that worked there. And that is something that made it into my novel about 90s Britpop. Okay. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, you know, uh, fast food or restaurant managers that would have these little tricks. (sighs) Yeah. Yuck. Yeah. They're sandwich fuckers, too. They are. They're fried chicken fuckers. Probably chicken fuckers. They should like me fucking the chicken as soon as it gets out of the fryer (laughs) and they are going to, it's not pleasant. They're going to get burned. Yeah. That's not good. Yeah. Yeah. No, I did not. I did not have to wear a white t-shirt. But Soul Sisters nonetheless. All right. So I know you're shopping around a novel that that we've been talking about. Is there anything else going on that you want to tell listeners about before we let you go? Well, I since your listeners are probably very interested in music mm-hmm. and writing about music, mm-hmm. I am also writing um, a a memoir, kind of in list form, um, and it's um, based on or related to the show, the MTV show, 120 Minutes, um, that was on every Sunday night where I saw the premiere of the Nirvana video. And, yeah. Uh, so it's a, a list of 120 things that I learned from 120 minutes, and I'm really having a lot of fun writing it. And YouTube is a treasure of yeah, 120 minutes of of anything like any MTV, any like music show at, with clips. You know, they, usually they don't show the entire show with the videos because of whatever copyright laws or something. But uh, you can watch all of the in between videos of interviews and. It, it was the show was often hosted by artists themselves, and they would perform. So you know, I I just have so much fun going back and watching like Evan Dando and Julianne Hatfield, and you know Beck and Kim Gordon and Courtney Love and everybody. Um, Johnny Rotten. It's very funny. 
Johnny Rotten is always a He's good interview. Yes. Yes. Especially there was a whole episode where him and the host, Dave Kendall, were shopping in a Tijuana marketplace. <laughs> Very, it's, it's great. You got to look for okay. that. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll be Very looking funny. for that after we sign off. That sounds yeah. amazing. Yeah. So I'm working on that. And um, so I, ha- you know, I have a publisher. I just, I don't have a contract. So I don't know if I should say who the publisher is or not, but um, I'm pretty sure that, should I? It's up to you. What, whatever you're comfortable with. All right. Well, I'm supposed to be writing this book for Barrel House, which I love Barrel House. So I'm just shouting yeah. out to Barrel House because they are the best people. They really are probably my favorite literary community. Nice. <laughs> the Barrel House community. Yeah. Well, thanks again for being on the podcast, Melissa. Thank this you. Is, this has just been so much fun. It's been great, Christy. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm thrilled you came on board. For more information about Melissa Raxley, go to her website, melissaraxley.com. You can also find her on Twitter at 90smelissa and Instagram at melissaraxleyperson. Now, where can people find a copy of We Know This Will All Disappear? Okay, good question. Um, You can order it. uh, You can probably order it from Bookshop, I think. You can order it directly from Pank, the publisher. But, I mean, I will be completely honest. It, there's been some issues lately with the publisher. I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I, you know, uh, so Uh-oh. you can also, I, I, you can order it from me directly via like Amazon, but it's like, it's like Amazon prints it like on demand. So if you, okay. I feel a little bad, you know, like I don't want to necessarily lead people to Amazon. Um, but it's, it's got a different cover. I made a cover for it. Really? Yeah, the one that I'm that is available on Amazon. But I mean, I I would love it if you bought it from the publisher, but I I just can't guarantee that you'll get it. You could go to my website and you can buy it from my website. Um and that and there's links to Pank and there's also links to Amazon, so fabulous. Okay. Yeah. Well, don't go away because Aaron Kamara, co-host of the Decibel Geek podcast, is going to tell me everything he knows about the Guns N' Roses song, Rocket Queen, even the dirty bits. You know what I'm talking about. Back in a moment. Hey everybody, this is Aaron Camaro from the Decibel Geek Podcast, and you're listening to Rock Is Lit. We're back with more Rock Is Lit. Aaron Camaro, co-host of the Decibel Geek Podcast, another proud member of the Pantheon Podcast family, is here to talk about Guns N' Roses, or more specifically their song Rocket Queen, which is a major motif in Melissa Ragley's short story Mannequin one of the 16 short stories that appears in her book, We Know This Will All Disappear. And I mentioned at the start of the episode that Aaron's is that big booming voice belting out, rock is lit, you hear in the intro and outro of the podcast. And somehow it sounds better when you do it. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry, Aaron, I'm not going to ask you to do it here now. But welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. 
Hey, thank you, Christy. It's a the honor and the pleasure is mine. You know, any any opportunity I get to talk about rock and roll, I'm all in. You know, it's it's fun to, like you said, finally put a face to the voice. And, you know, it's always interesting when you see people for the first time that you've listened to on podcasts for a while and you go, okay, all right. <laughs> now you get to see them speak and all that. It's fun. Yeah, I love it. it's great. So before we start talking about Rocket Queen, tell listeners a little bit about your podcast, Decibel Geek. Well, Decibel Geek has been around for, well, we're going on 12 years now. We just celebrated our 11-year anniversary last year, so coming up, I think this spring will be 12 years. It's really been about the passion of doing it, you know, talking about the music that we love. And we came up on 70s and 80s rock into the 90s, and there's great bands out there today that we love to talk about, too, and put put the spotlight on. And yeah, it's, it's all about the passion. You know, we used to have Headbangers Ball. Yep. And that's gone. We used to have Metal Edge Magazine, Circus, Hit Parader, Rip, all those great magazines. They're gone. You know, who's to talk about when one of these great bands comes out with a new album? Or who's talking about, you know, up and coming bands that have the same spirit as the bands that we grew up on and what we love, you know, and to showcase them? there's really nobody out there doing it. And so we said, you know what, let's create the podcast that we would listen to as rock music fans. And we've strived hard to do that over the years. We take the subject of rock and metal music and we just attack it from all different angles. Every way we can think of to talk about it from doing interviews or doing special themed shows we're all about it. Anything we can do to talk about rock and roll. We've got such great listenership out there and they interact with us so much. And we've kind of made this little community to the point where now every year we put on a rock and pod convention here in Nashville, Tennessee. So for 2023, it's going to be the weekend of March 18th here in Nashville. They rented this big old room down at the uh, Tennessee State Fairgrounds. We're going to fill it with rock stars. We're going to fill it with rock podcasters from all over the world. We're going to fill it with vendors. We do live interviews up on stage in front of the studio audience. You can see your favorite podcasters in action as they're creating their shows live on site. And we've done this many years in the past, and it's been a blast. If your listeners are interested in having a really, really good time, We call it the rock and roll party of the summer, but we're starting a little early this year. (laughs) Check it out. It's it's rockandpod.com. All the guests that are lined up so far are on there. All the podcasts that have signed up so far are on there. And there's more guests being announced all the time. We've already got a bunch of really cool ones coming. Wow. Okay, everybody. You heard it here. Go check it out. It sounds amazing. Rockandpod.com. Okay. Guns N' Roses. The song Rocket Queen from the Guns N' Roses album Appetite for Destruction is a major motif in Melissa Ragsley's short story Mannequin, which is one of 16 short stories that appears in her book, We Know This Will All Disappear. So before we talk about the song, give me a little bit of background on Guns N' Roses. They came out of L.A., right? Right. What's their story? Well, it was a couple of kids that lived in L.A. and a couple of kids that lived in a small town in Indiana. And one thing that always strikes me anytime we've, cause we've done interviews with guys, you know, that were big in that era, 
the guts that it takes to pick up from a small town in Indiana or a small town in Wisconsin or a small town anywhere and go, hey, we want to be rock stars. You know, we want to be rock musicians that are taken seriously. There's only one place to go to do that. And at the time, that was the Sunset Strip in Hollywood, California, and everybody knew it. There's been so many guys that picked up, you know, were in bands in their little towns. And the, some, some of the guys are okay being in bands in the small towns, just playing the bars and stuff. But then there's those few that go, you know what? I believe there's something more in this for me. So they pack their bags and they go to Los Angeles and hope for the best. I mean, how brave is that? Pretty damn brave. Yeah. And just to believe in yourself enough to go, you know what? We're going to do it and we're going to make it. So through the course of going to L.A., Izzy Stradlin and Axl Rose, Duff McKagan's up in Seattle. You got Slash. He's bumping around in Los Angeles playing for all kinds of different bands. Steven Adler's friends with Slash. Slash even auditioned for Poison at one time. Really? That's how integrated all these bands were on the Sunset Strip. So eventually, the stars align and these powers unite. And when they do, they're getting a lot of attention. They're playing the Sunset Strip over and over and over. And they're building a reputation in Los Angeles. Now, bands like Quiet Riot and Motley Crue and Rat and Poison, they'd already made it. You know, so this is coming up on like almost like a second wave that Guns N' Roses kicks off in that whole late 80s metal scene coming out of Los Angeles. So these guys get together. They, you know, the pieces all fall into place. They got a lot of help and a lot of love from Los Angeles. They're, they built their names. Everybody knows this is the next big thing. So the obvious thing is, get signed by a record label. And to be killing it on the Sunset Strip for as long as those guys were, it was just a matter of time and it was a bidding war. So really? it comes down it comes down to Geffen and Chrysalis. And Chrysalis actually offers them a lot more money than Geffen does. But Chrysalis wants to pretty well control the band. They want to take them and make them what they think is going to be the next big thing where Geffen says you guys are on to something here. We're going to let you be you. And so they passed up on the big money and went with Geffen. Okay. Geffen puts them in the studio, and they've already got a bunch of great songs already written. They go in the studio. They finish up those songs. They write some new ones while they're there. To get a producer, they had everybody looking at them. Paul Stanley from Kiss was in the running to be the producer for Appetite for Destruction. Mm. But I don't I don't think they liked Paul Stanley. I don't think they thought that he was going to be able to capture what they needed to be for their debut album. So then they decide they don't want to go with some big-name producer who's known for working with some other big-name band at that time because you could have got Michael Wagner or, you know, uh, Bo Hill or one of these guys that were well-known for bands like Rat, Quiet Riot, Motley Crue. They decided to go with a guy named Mike Klink. And Mike Klink had pretty much what he was known for at the time was doing Triumph albums. You know, the Canadian rock band from the 70s? No, I've not heard of them. Triumph okay. albums. Mm. Triumph is pretty awesome. If you love the old 70s classic rock. I'll check them out. Yeah. For sure. C- Canadian awesomeness mm. with Triumph. So they get this guy. He's kind of an unknown. 
They go into the studio. He captures them as best and as raw as he possibly can. And they write some amazing songs for that first album. So they put out the album in 87, but it's crickets. That's what I heard. It didn't really do that well upon initial release. So what happened for it to gain traction? They released a single in the UK, and it barely cracks the top 100 singles charts there. Wow. They come back to the US, and they go to Geffen and go, look, you know, we need some help here. So Geffen reaches out to MTV and says, hey, we got this band. They're called Guns N' Roses. And they got this single we're releasing here in the States. It's called Welcome to the Jungle. <laughs> you might have heard this one. Might have heard it. Somewhere, everywhere, you've heard Welcome to the Jungle for sure. Yes. So MTV goes, okay, and they start playing them at like 4 o'clock in the morning. But people hear it, people pick up on it, and they start calling radio stations, and they start calling MTV, and the requests, and the requests, and the requests, they don't stop. And now... Guns N' Roses is the biggest band in the world. I remember that video so well. Yeah. I wasn't staying up till four. I didn't see it at four in the morning, but when I did see it, you don't forget it. But yeah, when that album finally took off, boy, did it take off. Yeah. And they were, boy, it was because like it was one day it's Motley Crue. Yeah. It's all about Motley Crue one day. And then it's like the next day, it's all about Guns N' Roses. And those were the two top bands kind of teetering at the top of that whole rock scene in the late 80s, early 90s. So, I mean, to me, by the time I hear it, I'm about 14 years old. And I'd been a little kiss freak since I was a little bitty kid. Like somebody said, it's okay for this little kid to listen to kiss. So I was kiss crazy. That's all I knew. (laughs) But then... Once I started getting into my early teenage years, it wasn't just about, you know, what my aunts and uncles had, you know, because I just listened to their records. My dad had Sabbath and my aunts and uncles all had Kiss and stuff. And so I listened to everybody's music since I was really little. And then at that age, you're starting to kind of figure out yourself a little bit. You know, what are you into? What do I want to be into something that my parents don't? It's not their thing. And it's not my Aunt Pam or my Uncle Bruce's thing. And it. You know, it's something my my cool cousins that are a little bit older than me have. And I'm sure that's probably the first time I ever heard it. My cousin Robin had all the best cassette tapes and was on the cutting edge of everything new coming out. And it blew me away. I mean, just everything about it was everything that a 14-year-old kid that's rock and roll crazy could want out of a band. They were cool. They were dangerous because they had that reputation, you know, and, you know, Motley Crue had a reputation of being dangerous too. And I think that was an appeal because 
so many young adolescent males really lifted bands like Motley Crue. Oh yeah. And Guns N' Roses. You know, there's there's a certain adrenaline and certain masculinity with those bands from that era. And you know, as a kid that grew up in that era, my first things I ever really learned about sex was from bands like Kiss and Motley Crue, you know. <laughs> I didn't understand it, you know, yeah, you know, I didn't, I didn't understand it. And, you know, you come to realize, well, that's not really what it's all about. But as a young man coming up, it's like, wow, yeah, you know, going to parties and meeting girls and drinking beer and, you know, all the things that your parents don't want you to do. You're looking at these bands and going, man, those guys are so cool. I want to be like that, you know. And so the music of Guns N' Roses meant so much to me. And that album, Appetite for Destruction, boy, oh boy, if I had a dollar for every time I listened to it in my whole life, we'd be doing something here. The song Rocket Queen wasn't among the big single hits that came out of that album. In fact, I didn't even hear that song until after I read this, this Melissa Ragsley's book. So tell me about the song Rocket Queen. Who wrote that to start with? So originally, it's written musically by Slash. Okay. Now, here's, here's what's cool to me with guitar players. Like, I think anybody that's got the time and the ambition can mechanically play a guitar. Mm-hmm. You know, if you really take the time to learn how to do it, you can do it. There's a difference between somebody knowing how to play guitar and somebody who creates magic with the guitar. So the story is Slash, and if if you know a serious guitar player, you'll understand this, they're constantly noodling around with their guitars. They're constantly feeling like, can you put down your guitar for a minute while I'm trying to talk to you? You know, <laughs> no. They're constantly noodling around, fiddling around on guitars. And what happens is Slash is doing this, like, and this is, I guess, his best songwriting process, and it's the ability to be noodling around and, you know, you're watching TV and you're playing around with your guitar and you're eating breakfast, you're playing your guitar, you're in the shower, you're playing your guitar, you know, <laughs> but, while you, but while you're doing that, you go, whoa, what was that? That's something. And then play it again and go, yeah, that's something right there. And then kind of embellish it and add to it and go, okay, oh, oh wait a minute. Oh yeah, this is, I got something here. That's the origination of Rocket Queen. Okay. So even before Guns N' Roses, Slash was in a band with future Guns N' Roses bass player Duff McKagan called Road Crew. And so Slash brings this little piece he's been playing around with to Duff. Duff goes, mm, you got something there. And he adds his little something to it. And then pretty soon they know they've got something good. So it just kind of sits on the back burner. This would be one of the songs that gets created in the studio mm. when these guys are going, okay, we've got a handful of songs that we've got already that we've already done demos for, have had around for years, but we got to flesh out an entire album. So we need some more songs. Slash goes, well, you know, there's this one thing me and Duff kind of been messing around with, plays it for Axel and Izzy. And so together they all combine with Steven Adler on drums and they flesh it out into this amazing song. Yeah. So then Axel takes it 
and runs with it and adds vocals and lyrics to it. So it starts out as such a humble beginning thing to being, okay, we need something new. We've got this, and it becomes, and it's one of my favorite songs on Appetite for Destruction. Like I said, I hadn't heard it before just recently, and now I can't stop playing it. I really, really yeah. like that song. It's a great song. And I was looking to see if they did a video for it, and I can't find one. I don't think so. Not for that one, because that would have been, that's a deeper cut on the yeah. album. Yeah. And one thing I'll say about Appetite for Destruction, too, as a whole, is I don't care who your favorite band is or how much you love said band. You probably don't love every single song that they ever came out with. I mean, you're always going to go, I love this band, like me, with Kiss. There's plenty of Kiss songs I could pick out that I could say, I don't really like that one so much, but I love these. So it's hard to, to picture a perfect album. There's a few out there, in my opinion. One for sure is Appetite for Destruction. You can put that thing on from Welcome to the Jungle all the way to Rocket Queen and not skip a song all the way through. Appetite for Destruction is a perfect rock and roll album. What do you think it is about it? That is there some kind of continuity that goes from beginning to end that kind of brings everything together? like a theme or something, or what is it about it? Because I know exactly what you're saying. And those albums are rare. But when, they, when you have an album where every track works, it's more than just every track working. There's something that elevates that album that goes beyond the individual songs. It becomes this collective thing that's just amazing. And, and I think you're right. I think that album is one of them. I agree. I think... It's like I said, like the aligning of the stars. Yeah, maybe you know, that's it. really what it comes down to. It's the magic of rock and roll. You know, it's it's five young, hungry guys willing to do anything to make it. You know, in a situation that is, you got to understand, probably less than ideal. You know, these guys. I mean, they come to come to Los Angeles from Indiana with nothing, so they're not living under the best conditions, but they've got a dream. And this is a part of that dream. And to see it, or even better, to hear it, you know, played out on this album, you know, who they are, what they bring as musicians and songwriters, the stars aligning, the right producer, who would have picked that guy? He was the one, you know, so everything just fell into place to make that a perfect album and one of the most iconic rock albums of all time. And as far as Rocket Queen goes, again, back to a 14-year-old Aaron Camaro <laughs> hearing a song like this, and it's a sexy song. Yeah. It's got, uh -huh. it's got some very sexiness to it, to the point even where there is a sex scene that is recorded in the studio that is used in the track. That's what I was going to ask you about. As an adolescent male listening to this music, that that song was like, whoa, you know, there's like a woman really enjoying herself. <laughs> it's like, that's amazing. You know, or, these guys. Or she's a very good actress, one or the other. Well, as you, at the time, nobody knew that. Yeah. But as you find out later on, it's very authentic. 
let's stay with this. this. We're talking rock and roll. Let's get into the naughty bits here. What were they really having sex in the studio? Was Axel really having sex with the drummer's girlfriend in the studio? That's the story. So apparently this girl was an acquaintance of Steven Adler, the drummer. And I mean, this is the way I've always heard it, the way I've been told. And they were very close, kind of dated, but weren't serious. You know, nobody came and said, she's my girlfriend. This is my boyfriend. It was just kind of a thing, yeah. you know, friend, friends with benefits more gotcha. or less. And so when it came down to it, the girl's in the studio with Axel and Axel says to her, this is my vision for this song. This is what I want. What do you say? You want to help me create it? And she had reservations because she had this relationship with Steven. But, you know, at the time, they're young, they're partying, they're having a good time. We all don't make the best decisions when we're that <laughs> age and we're partying. And, and uh, you got to imagine the atmosphere that these people are in. That's what it is. It's a party. So it's like, you know what? It's like a bad tattoo, maybe, you know, you, let's go for it. A, you're, I'm 18 years old. This I've got a good buzz on. This sounds like a fantastic idea. And she went for it and now is immortalized on this song forever. Do you know if there was a fallout like with the drummer and Axel or the drummer and the girl? That I don't know, but I do know that. As everybody who was young and did foolish things when they were younger, we all get older and we all look back on some of those things. You go, hmm, probably shouldn't have done that. <laughs> and I believe this lady has gone on and done interviews and has made a great life for herself, helping other people, but look back on those times and kind of regretted doing it. But, you know, when you're young and you're having fun, and it's partying and living the Guns N' Roses lifestyle. I mean, part of her deep down, I would think, goes, you know what? That's still pretty cool. Why did the band break up? I guess, just like anything, when a band gets really big and... Because you got to understand, these guys went from nothing... Coming out with this album that everybody's been telling them is going to be the next big thing. You guys are going to be mega stars, and it don't happen for a year. And then, like the flick of a switch, you guys are the biggest band on earth. What do you want? We'll get you anything you want. And when you're young, and I can only imagine this because I didn't live this life, but when you're young and you've got the world being handed to you on a silver platter, you know, there's going to be excesses, there's going to be, you know, egos inflate and, you know, more money, more problems is what they always say, you know, and then what camaraderie you had as brothers scratching and clawing just to make it somewhere, just to, you know, make a living playing the music that you believe in, all of a sudden, it's a job. Yeah. Now, now it's, you know, where's the next album? You know, it comes with a whole lot of other pressures. You know, get in the get in the limo, you're going here. And when you're done with that, you're going here. When you're done with that, you're going here, you know. And in the meantime, it's like, I'd like some cocaine. 
Here you, here, <laughs> here you go. You know, they're like, what else can I get you? Bottle of Jack Daniels. Here you go. You know, and now all of a sudden, everything's so easy. You know, when you're poor and you're on drugs, well, that's one thing because you can't afford all the good stuff. Sure. But then when you're rich and you're on drugs, you get all the good stuff, but the good stuff will kill you and cause a lot of problems for you. And it doesn't matter who you are, you know? So with Guns N' Roses, there was a lot of, I mean, those guys got into heroin real bad. And if you ever, Slash's book is out of this world. It's crazy. The stuff he goes through with drugs, you know, and it's terrible because he's such a talented guy. Yeah. But, you know, if if you've ever been around somebody who does heroin, you know, it, it can take every beautiful thing about that person and just ruin it, you know, and nothing else is more important than getting more heroin. And the fact that we got reputations to uphold and all that stuff. I'll never forget when they were on, I don't remember, was it the Grammys or something like that? And they're up on stage and they're drunk. They're messed up and they're swearing and they're trying to bleep them. And I'm a kid at home, you know, like I said, like, you know, in my mid-teens, I'm watching this on TV and I'm like, man, those guys are the <laughs> coolest. And my dad is going, what a bunch of idiots. <laughs> of course. Like, well, yeah, you know, it's yeah. kind, of, kind of the same thing you say about me. So that's probably why I think oh, these guys are so cool. Yeah. So, you know. <laughs> oh. They're like, oh, you, you long-haired idiots, you know, all of you. But uh, like, hey, you know, it was your Sabbath records, Dad. You did That's it. That's right. You. That's right. But like I said, they were, you know, biggest band in the world. And they never were able to top Appetite for Destruction. Yeah. You know, all these years later. And then, you know, what they came out with the Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, which was this big bloated double album with, Everybody has fun with that. Every podcast almost has done it. Take the Use Your Illusion albums and make it one album because there's a lot of fat you can trim off of that stuff. And I think it's because of ego and probably drugs and all that where the band just kind of became bloated after a while. A lot of responsibility to follow up an album like Appetite for Destruction. How do you do that? You can't. It's impossible. That's interesting. I like hearing the story about Rocket Queen and it's kind of separating myth from, from what really happened. And what really happened is better than any myth you could come up with, apparently. In this case, yeah. Yes, yes. Thanks so much for being on the show, Aaron. So where can people find Decibel Geek? On all the platforms, I'm assuming? Uh, I'd start with Pantheon. Because if you're out there and you're looking for great music podcasts, there's really only one place to go, and that's Pantheon. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of music podcasts out there. How could you ever know which ones are the very best and the very coolest? You'd have to go through all of them. Some of them are really, really terrible. It would take <laughs> you a long time. Pantheon said this is a problem that we can solve. We will go through and listen to all the rock and music podcasts because it's not just rock, it's all kinds. Yeah. And we will figure out which ones are the best and we will cultivate them and put them all in one place. And it saves the man that's just discovered podcasts, that's a music fan, man, woman, child, whoever, to go, I just go to Pantheon. 
and they break it down for you. Whatever you like, it's all right there. Pantheon Podcast, that's where you start. Otherwise, the Decibel Geek Podcast is everywhere you get any great podcast. Well, cheers to Pantheon and cheers to Decibel Geek. And thank you so much for being on the show. And don't forget to visit Melissa Ragsley's website at melissaragsley.com to learn more about her short story collection, We Know This Will All Disappear, in which you can read the story Mannequin that features the Guns N' Roses song Rocket Queen. Believe me, you don't want to miss that story or any of the stories in the book for that matter. Hi, Adam Curry, back with you on MTV. Well, here's the story. They've been called rowdy, raunchy, gut-level rockers, and the next band that everybody tries to copy. Now, their own record label said that they'll make it if they live long enough. Well, they have, and Guns N' Roses is one of the most talked-about bands this year. Tune for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who will offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. If you like what you hear, subscribe, follow, and spread the word. And check out the Rock is Lit vault on my website for news, bonus material, and outtakes from episodes. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is Lit! It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.